Greetings, everyone. Many scriptures tell us that when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom over the earth, that Israel and Judah will be brought out of a national captivity and restored both spiritually and materially in a new covenant relationship with God. But this feast pictures not only that peoples of Israel will be restored to godliness, it also has a great deal of meaning for the rest of humankind as well. And today I want to focus on how the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the spiritual restoration and salvation of all nations, of all of mankind. Alfred Adersheim, in his book, The Temple, wrote of how the Jews of Jesus' day understood the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was uh, a belief that evidently had been present among the people of Israel and Judah for who knows how long, perhaps dating back to as early as the time of Moses. But the Jews understood that the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to a time that all nations would be converted to the true religion and all nations would be gathered to the Lord. Another name applied to the Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Ingathering. Exodus 23 and verse 16 and also Exodus 34 and verse 22, the feast is spoken of as the Feast of Ingathering. And the Jews correctly understood that the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the future gathering in of all peoples to worship and serve the true God. During the Feast of Tabernacles, you can read about it in Numbers 29, there were, was a, uh, were a great many extra sacrifices that were offered to God burnt offerings and other sacrifices. And among those were 70 bullocks that were sacrificed to God throughout or during the period of the Feast of Tabernacles. A certain number of bullocks were sacrificed each day, and in all they amounted to 70. And another tradition of the Jews, and I don't know that this can be this, the validity of this tradition can be proven from Scripture, but it, at least it is a teaching, was and still is a teaching among the Jews, that these 70 bullocks, these burnt offerings that were offered during the feast represented an atonement for the 70 nations of the world, the Gentile nations of the world. But mankind, for the most part, has, during the past 6,000 years, been cut off from God. As you know, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden and they were given instructions by God concerning their conduct. And 
they chose to rebel against and disobey God and, in effect, reject God's rule over them and chose instead to be ruled by Satan and to, and to rule themselves. And so they rejected God's authority and his rule over them. God cast them out of his presence. Now, mankind was not at first completely cut off from God. We see that the, the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, were allowed to come before God and sacrifice to God. And Abel's sacrifice was found acceptable to God. Cain's was not. But then Cain murdered his brother out of a fit of jealousy and rage because God had accepted his offering and rejected that of Cain. And so Cain took his wrath out on his brother, murdered him. And the progeny of Adam and Eve continued. They had another son besides Cain, at least one other one. And so there were at least two lines of descent following the death of Abel from descending from Adam and Eve through their sons. And only among the descendants of Seth were, Seth uh, was uh, a progenitor of some individuals at least who were righteous before God. But every one of the descendants of Cain was wicked. And these two lines of descent intermingled with one another and intermarried and soon the whole earth was corrupt before God. Notice in Genesis 6 and verse 5, Genesis 6 and verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and, and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. So this was the state to which mankind had sunk, and the kind of relationship or lack of relationship that existed between God and his creation this is what it had come to. In verse 11, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark and so forth. And in verse 12, it says that all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. God told Noah to make an ark. And only Noah and his family were found fit to continue beyond this catastrophe that was about to engulf the world. And so the whole world was destroyed. Every human being living on the earth at that time was, was uh, consumed by that flood except for Noah and his family. But Noah and his family did survive the flood and began to uh, 
his sons began to reproduce after the flood. But even after that event, mankind as a whole continued in rebellion against God. And the people of the earth chose to reject God's commandments and reject God's ways. And God eventually confused their language and scattered them across the face of the earth. And mankind continued in his obstinate rebellion against God until God finally chose an individual named Abram of the city of Ur and chose Abraham, uh, Abram, and later his name was changed to Abraham, to be an instrument that would uh, eventually lead to the restoration of the right kind of relationship, the desirable relationship between God and mankind. Now, that was not to occur immediately. In fact, it still has not occurred fully by any means. But that was uh, God's intent in choosing Abraham and, and his seed. And God, made, God tested Abraham. And Abraham proved his willingness to obey God and yield to his laws. And, and as a result, God blessed Abraham and made certain promises to his descendants or concerning his descendants. And eventually, several hundred years after Abraham died, God led a group of the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt, the people of Israel. And they were a people who had been called out of slavery and chosen by God as his own people with a special calling. Notice in Exodus 19 and verse 5, Exodus 19 verse, verse 5, God said, Now therefore, this was addressed to the people of Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, notice that this was a, was a proposal that God made to the people of Israel, and it was conditional. Their being a special treasure to God was contingent on them obeying his voice and keeping the covenant that was made between he and the people of Israel at this time. And he went on to say, verse 6, if you, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So the, the promise was that they would be a special and holy nation to God, contingent on them being faithful to his word, to, 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 their, to their promise to keep his word. And within this uh, proposal was something beyond just the people of Israel themselves. They were to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
In other words, they were they were to be uh, become a, a special people with a mission and a purpose that went beyond themselves. Because the primary responsibility of a priest is to teach others. They were to be a model nation. And they were to be a nation that would be ready and equipped to and able to teach others among the nations how to relate to God. And so the even though God had chosen the people of Israel as his people in a special way, his thoughts were never very far from the rest of mankind. It was not that they were just an exclusive people and that's the only people that God ever intended to interact with or to be reconciled to. That was never God's intent. Even in the laws that God gave to Israel, there were, there were, uh, there were frequently mentioned the people of uh, people that were descended from other than Abraham. Notice in Exodus 20, for example, in verse 10, it, God is giving the command here concerning the Sabbath, and he says, The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. In other words, the Sabbath was not just for the people of Israel, it was for Gentiles as well. And specifically stated, some have claimed that the Sabbath was only for the Israelites trying to reason around any obligation to keep the Sabbath, that it was just given to the physical Israelite nation, it was, it was not for Gentiles. That's a lie. It was even in the, the specific command here. First of all, the Sabbath was made holy at creation, and there were no Israelites or Jews at that time, only human beings. Actually, uh, Adam and Eve and the rest of their progeny, of course, where um, the Sabbath was no doubt revealed to them. It's doubtful that they kept it, at least not for very long. But it was something that had been made holy from the time of creation, and that's even mentioned here in this commandment. Uh, as a reminder, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. That goes back to creation. And in the Sabbath commander specifically mentioned Gentiles. And not just in the Sabbath command, but in a number of other laws that God gave to Israel, Gentiles are mentioned. And any Gentiles that were living among the Israelites were expected to obey the very same laws that God gave to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, verse 14. Concerning the Feast of Tabernacles, God said to the people of Israel, You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger or the foreigner, 
This would be people of non-Israelite descent, Gentiles, and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. God's laws were never intended for the people of Israel alone. You know, stealing is a sin no matter what your parentage or your ancestry is. Murder, lying, committing adultery, and the rest of the breaches of God's law have a disastrous effect for you no matter what your race or nationality or ethnicity or any of those things are. So the laws that God gave were laws that are suitable for mankind, not just for any select group of mankind. Nevertheless, God had chosen Israel, as we read, to be a special people with whom he interacted at that time in a way that he was not interacting with the other nations. God had specifically intervened in the history of the people of Israel, led them out of slavery, had revealed to them his law, had appeared to them not in a way that they could see his physical presence, but he appeared to them on Mount Sinai in the cloud and the fire and spoke to them with his voice. He had had appeared to Moses, their leader, and given Moses, personally given to Moses, a set of instructions and laws that the people were to keep, a code of law. And he, as Mr. Kendall explained, he had them to build a tabernacle which became the place where God would be present with them and where they would offer sacrifices to God and worship God, and he would accept their sacrifices. And he led them through the wilderness with his presence. His presence was with them. And he... They, 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 that presence was visible in the form of a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. This was not being done with any other nation. And he brought them into a land that he had promised to give to them as the descendants of Abraham and blessed them, sent his prophets to teach them had a priesthood that was intended to teach them, had a system of rituals that were intended to instruct them in spiritual matters and to help them to learn what being holy is all about. And he instructed them not to get up, caught up in following Gentile customs, especially religious customs, because those customs were corrupt and idolatrous and something that God detested and hated. Notice in Deuteronomy 12, verse 1, God said, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God, the, the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations 
which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree and you shall destroy their altars break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire and you shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things so they were not to follow the Gentile customs the religious customs and they were in fact to destroy the, every vestige of that form of religion and not adopt it into their worship in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 12 he said when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go into dispossession to displace them and dwell in their land take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying how did these nations serve their gods I also will do likewise you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods whatever I command you be careful to observe it you shall not add to it nor take away from it. Every nation on the face of the earth had become corrupt before God and was following a system of idolatrous worship which God hated and had nothing but contempt for. The people of Israel were to be different from the other nations. They were to be a special and holy people and worship God only in the way that God himself specified that he was to be worshipped and in no other way. They were not to worship God like the Gentiles and they were not to intermarry with them. In Deuteronomy 7, God told them that they were not to intermarry with the heathen nations. Notice why in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 7, God said, of these nations nor sh shall you make marriages with them you shall not give your daughter the to their son nor take their daughter for your son for they will turn your sons away from following me that's exactly what happened with King Solomon as Mr. Johnson was discussing in the sermonette that's what turned Solomon's heart away from God he disobeyed this law this commandment that God had given to the people of Israel disregarded, ignored it, and chose to, to marry foreign wives, the daughters of foreign gods, and they turned his heart away from God. And this happened at other times as well in the history of Israel. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So all mankind had turned to idolatry. God had chosen out a particular people, a small number of people relative to the number of people on the earth, and a nation that was a nation of slaves. There was nothing outstanding or remarkable about this people. 
except the fact that they had been descended from Abraham who had proven obedient to God. And God gave them a mission. But they failed in their mission for the most part. For the most part, Israel was never faithful to the covenant that they had agreed to at Mount Sinai. There were a few periods of time where led by righteous kings or leaders, they did turn to God for a short time, but that never lasted very long, for a very long period of time. Any general or national repentance was short-lived. And for the most part, Israel did not fulfill their responsibility to be uh, an example to the other nations of righteousness, certainly were not fit to teach other nations about God and how to relate to God, but instead chose to imitate and to follow the religious customs and traditions of the other nations and to adopt their gods into their worship. And so God eventually sent them into captivity and rejected them. Later, the Jews, the, the southern kingdom, the Jewish people, consisting of the tribe of Judah, along with the Levites and Benjamites, were brought back, some of them, to Palestine. And God continued to work with them, but they were still not wholly faithful to God. Yet God had not given up on mankind. Despite all of the hundreds and even thousands of years that God had dealt with mankind, that man had continued in his rebellious ways and rejected God's laws and rejected God himself, God had not given up on mankind or his purpose or plan for mankind. Eventually, he sent his own son, at that time the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ, who was God, who was the second person of the Godhead, who was the eternal, he was the very personality who had led Israel through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, delivered them from bondage in Egypt who had appeared to them in the tabernacle and in the temple, who had spoken the laws from Mount Sinai. He was that one who had interacted with mankind as the spokesman or the representative of the God family to interact directly with human beings. And he was somehow miraculously changed into evidently a human sperm cell which impregnated a woman, Mary, of the tribe of Judah, and he was born as a descendant of King David, one of the few righteous kings of Israel. And he was sent with a mission not only to live a perfect life, but then to die as a sacrifice to pay for sin. And it was not just the sins of the Israelites that he was sent to pay for, but it was the sins of mankind. Notice in 1 John chapter 2, 
1 John 2 and verse 2, John wrote of Jesus, He himself is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God's purpose has always included all of mankind, not just a segment of mankind. We're not going to discuss the common idea of predestination that's prevalent in some, especially Protestant denominations today, but but the, the idea of that is completely erroneous, that God from before the creation chose out a tiny sliver of mankind to give salvation to and has condemned the, the rest to eternal torture in hell. That's a satanic lie. God sent Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of the whole world. And he intends to offer salvation to every last human being who's ever drawn breath. And I, I believe that also includes even every human being who's been conceived, including children who were aborted, murdered by their own parents. And I don't know exactly how that will all work out. We'll see. But I believe that will be the case. But God had included the Gentiles in his thinking all along. He had never completely forsaken them, though they had forsaken him. In Romans 5, Romans 5 and verse 11, Paul writes, and he's writing to a, a church in Rome, which was a Gentile city. Now, there were some Jews in Rome, as there were in virtually every major city in the ancient Roman Empire and much of the rest of the world as well. Jewish synagogues existed all over the Roman Empire. but And, and so in the churches that were established by Paul and others, Paul didn't actually establish the Roman church. Somebody else did. Evidently, it was established through a group of Christians that had at some point gone to Rome. But Paul did write a letter to the Roman church, and it was uh, probably mostly Gentile converts that were in that church, as with the other churches that Paul worked with. And he writes here in verse 11 to these mostly Gentile Christians. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So, in other words, Adam set the pattern of sin and rebellion against God, but every human being is followed down that same path. And so all have 
been made subject to death, a penalty for sin. God told Adam and Eve if they sinned, they would die. And that penalty is passed on all mankind after the pattern and example of Adam. But notice in verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came, and the free gift came is in italics, it's not in the original, in all men, resulting in justification of life. This, this is a poor translation. And actually, I, I was working on this last night and had put another translation in my notes. It's a much better translation, but then... Something happened about 1.30 in the morning and everything disappeared <laughs> from my notes. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't able to get that uh, translation back. I just had to jot down some of this on a piece of paper. Uh, but anyway, what the point is of this verse, if it were translated properly, is that the condemnation that resulted from Adam's transgression and people following that example is contrasted here with the righteousness that is opened up to all of mankind, the justification of sin that is opened up to mankind through the sacrifice and even uh, in, in addition, the righteous conduct of Jesus Christ, the example that he set. Of course, what allowed him, what made it possible for him to die for our sins was the fact that he had no sin of his own, that he lived a righteous life. And as it goes on to say in verse 19, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Jesus Christ set the pattern for a different pathway for mankind. The path of obedience instead of rebellion. And it's God's intent that humankind, just as they have followed Adam's example of disobedience, will eventually be led in such a way that they will follow in the path of Jesus Christ in obedience and repentance. Now, salvation was never completely closed to Gentiles. As a matter of fact, there were quite a number of Gentile proselytes among the Jews at the time of Jesus. And as I mentioned, the Jews had synagogues in many cities throughout the Gentile world, and in those synagogues were typically quite a number of Gentile proselytes, people who had, who had believed to some degree or another in the God of the Bible and had come to fear God and wanted to be associated with God and his worship. And they were permitted by the Jews to become a part of their congregations 
if they would do certain things, among which was the abandonment of their idols and their idolatrous customs, separate themselves from idolatry. That was one of the requirements which is actually mentioned in Acts chapter 15 and elsewhere. But still, it was not as salvation was not as readily available to Gentiles under the Old Covenant as it was to become under the New Covenant with the introduction of the New Covenant. Because under the New Covenant, there was a much more specific and greater effort that was to be um, established and pursued to reach Gentile nations with God's message and to, in that way, make salvation available to them. The Jews had developed a prejudice against Gentiles, almost a hatred for Gentiles because of the uncleanness of their customs as they regarded it and rightly so. And Gen uh, Jewish people generally avoided associating with Gentiles, if at all possible, with the exception of, of those who were proselytes, as I mentioned. But they tended to scorn Gentiles and look down on them and regarded them as inherently unclean and filthy. Now, in reality, we're all inherently unclean as human beings, but the Jews did saw the Gentiles in particular as inherently unclean and defiled and to be avoided. And so any contact with them was to be avoided, if at all possible. This was how even Christ's disciples, the ones that he had chosen as apostles, that was their mindset. Until Jesus Christ, after he had died and been resurrected, continued to work with them and reveal certain things to them. And he had to reveal to Peter that it was his intent, as he had instructed them before he died, that they were to take this message to all nations. They didn't really get it, evidently. And so Christ had to intervene in a particular way here to, to get it across to Peter, who was the leader among the twelve at that time. And impress upon him the necessity of taking this message not just to the Jewish people, but to all people. And Peter came uh, Peter got the point after Christ uh, intervened with his vision. And this was what Peter understood from it in Acts 10 and verse 35. This is the conclusion that he came to. He said, In every nation, whoever fears him, that is God, and works righteousness is accepted by him. Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. 
Now, why Peter didn't understand that before is kind of a mystery because it's pretty clear even from reading the Old Testament that that would be the case. But he came to that understanding. And notice that Jesus, what the instructions of Jesus was to the apostles and to his church in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 and verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Notice that they were to make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this commission is still in effect for us, the church of God. We haven't reached the end of the age yet. And Christ still expects us to be carrying out this mission that he gave to the church. would take the gospel to the whole world. And this, this is repeated, this, this charge that he gave to the church is repeated several other places in the New Testament. Paul understood clearly that what God is concerned about is not so much your physical ancestry, but how you conduct yourself in relation to his loss. Notice in Romans 2, Paul was writing again to a church which had Gentile converts and some Jewish converts as well. And notice Paul wrote in verse 27 of Romans 2, or starting with verse 26, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, who are generally uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. And so we see that one who yields to God's commandments and obeys God, is faithful to God, is in God's sight a Jew, that is, he becomes one of God's own chosen people and of the seed of Abraham, spiritually speaking. And Paul was chosen as an apostle to specifically take his, his specific 
charge was to take the gospel not only to the people of Israel, but to the Gentile nations as well. Now the 12 apostles primarily worked in areas that were predominantly Israelite, although in some cases they did reach out to Gentiles as well as Peter did and, and others did at times. But their mission was primarily was to the Israelite nations, but Paul's specific commission was to go to the Gentiles especially. And he became, as he, as he said in the book of Galatians, an apostle to the Gentiles. And he established a number of churches in Gentile areas. And many Gentiles were converted. We don't know how many were converted during that era of the church, the, the uh, era of the New Testament. But it's likely that there are many thousands. We know that in the first uh, days of the church's existence, after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, we're told that 5,000 people were soon converted in Jerusalem. And then from, from that point, the church continued to grow. And we don't know how many thousands of people, the Bible doesn't tell us how many thousands were eventually converted during that period, but it was likely quite a number of thousands of people. Yet, most of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, remained cut off from God. The Jews themselves, while they professed obedience to God's commandments, were not really obedient, as Jesus pointed out to them numerous times, and even told some of their leaders, despite their professions, that they were the children of Satan the devil. And he said, as, as we read earlier the, the other day, I forget which day it was, that Unless, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means be in God's kingdom. And then God rejected the Jewish nation as Jesus had prophesied and allowed the Romans to come in and destroy their land, their city, their temple, and scatter them across the face of the earth. And down through time, since then, the last 2,000 years, although the church has continued to exist and to preach the gospel wherever it could in various ways, only a relatively small number of human beings have been converted. Only a relatively small number have even been reached by the gospel in, at, in, at, in many, at many points in history, although... Uh, eventually the Bible has been become a very widely circulated book and many millions of copies of the Bible have been printed. And so in that sense, the message of God's word has been a, 
made available to all mankind. And from time to time, the church itself has reached out to other nations and peoples with the message of God's word. Even in the in the 19th and 20th centuries, various churches of God sent out ministers to places in Africa and South America and Mexico, across the United States, into Asia with the message of the gospel and literally literally uh, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people were converted evidently or at least became members of churches of God in places, different places in the world including Europe, Africa, South America, Mexico, the United States and elsewhere. But still, most people have remained cut off from God and dead in their sins, not having repented, including most Israelites, because they've rejected God's word. God's word is available to them. It's no secret what the Ten Commandments are, and they're so simple that a child ought to be able to understand them. How hard is it to understand obey your parents? Or don't steal or don't lie. Every parent tells his children don't steal and don't lie. Or I shouldn't say every parent. Most parents, <laughs> if they have any morality of their own. They teach their children don't steal, don't lie, don't take things that don't belong to you. And there was a time even in our society where adultery was frowned on. And it was a serious considered a very serious thing for a person to commit adultery. Even though it was often done, it was still not something that was generally accepted as proper behavior. That's sort of changed in our society, but at least to, to a degree. It's not, so God's commandments are not any secret, but they've been rejected and disobeyed and mostly ignored. And even today... Most people don't necessarily approve of lying, but yet it's something that is very commonly done. And in the final analysis, most people don't lie without, or I should say, most, many people lie without giving it a second thought, and many people are more than willing to hear lies and listen to them. In fact, most people would far prefer to listen to lies than they would the truth. The truth is not, a, is not something that is popularly accepted. If you tell people the truth, quite often the reaction is hostile, especially if you tell them they've got to change their behavior in order to conform with the truth. But Peter, in, a, in the temple, shortly after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, preached a sermon in which he said, and this is in Acts 3 and verse 21, speaking of Jesus Christ, 
Peter said that heaven must receive him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Peter spoke of a time of the restoration of all things. And the time that all things are going to be restored is the time when Jesus Christ will return to this earth and establish on the earth the kingdom of God, establish his government over all of mankind. Among the all things to be restored upon Jesus Christ's return is the broken relationship of the human family with the Creator. And there are many prophecies in the Bible that tell us about that restoration. More than a score of scriptural passages specifically prophesy of the phenomenon of the nations worshiping and serving God during the millennial period and beyond. Now we know that after Jesus Christ's return, he will lead Israel back to the promised land. He will teach them his ways and pour out his spirit upon them and give them a new heart and a new mind. And as he renews them spiritually, he will also grant them abundant material blessings. But in conjunction with this, he will also begin to work with the Gentile nations to re-educate them, to bring them into a full and blessed relationship with him. Now, Scripture indicates this isn't going to happen all of a sudden. It's not going to be like waving a magic wand and everything is suddenly different. This will take effort and time to accomplish. But the Bible speaks of it in many places. For example, in Micah chapter 4, in Micah chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Now mountain in the Bible is often symbolic of a nation or a government. And in this case, it's talking about the mountain of the Lord's house, talking about God's government shall be established on top of the mountains. In other words, God, God's government is going to be over the entire earth. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So notice the law is going to go forth from Zion. Zion is the name of the hill from which the kings of Israel ruled the nation in Jerusalem. And so it represents the seat of government, of God's government, in how it's used in this prophecy. And Jerusalem, of course, was the capital city 
of the kingdom of Israel and will be the capital city for the kingdom of God on the earth during the millennium. And God is going to send his word. He's going to send people out to deliver that message to the nations. And he will judge many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. He's going to rebuke them. He's going to, to correct them. And he's going to tell them to get rid of their weapons of war. Many of those weapons will be destroyed directly and immediately at the coming of Christ. But others will be eventually destroyed. As it says, they will beat their swords into plowshares. They'll take their armored vehicles and their uh, instruments of war and melt them down and, to ma and make them into agricultural implements. Think about all the steel and other metals that have been wasted in warfare, building tanks and then destroying them, airplanes and various other vehicles, ships and so forth. What if all of those, all of that steel had been used to make plows and tractors instead to provide food for mankind? It's estimated that that about a half a billion people on the earth at any given time are facing starvation. Or more than half a billion, more closer to about 700 million, I believe, is the last statistic that I read. And were it not for the generosity of nations like the United States who have, who have for decades been feeding many of those people with gifts of food, those people would starve to death, and many are starving. Many people starve to death every day, a number of people. But there, there really is no reason people ought to be starving on the earth with the resources and the wealth that is available if it were properly channeled and used. It will be used properly at that time. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And instead of killing each other, they'll be feeding each other. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. So there are going to be fundamental changes made in how humankind is governed. And Jesus Christ is going to establish his government over the face of the earth. In Isaiah 56 and verse 6, and this, this, actually, this prophecy actually applies to our time as well, because anyone who is willing, as we read, to fear God and to work righteousness is accepted of God, and that's always been true. Alas, also the son of the foreigner, who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, and this remember this is in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 56, 
who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. Notice this is speaking of foreigners serving God, and how do they manifest that obedience? By keeping the Sabbath. And holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Now during the millennial period, God will reestablish the Levitical priesthood and there will be literal burnt offerings. Animal sacrifices will be restored during that time. And this could apply in a dual fashion to other sacrifices which were typified by the burnt offerings, which I won't go into that in detail right now. But during the millennial period, people will be literally offering animal sacrifices to God once again in Jerusalem. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Speaking of Gentiles, others will be gathered to God as well, not just the people of Israel. He is going to gather the nations to him and provide for their needs and teach them and instruct them in his ways. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall be gathered to it. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So there is going to be a change of heart among all the peoples of the earth which means God's Spirit is going to be poured out on all nations. Nations shall no longer follow the dictates of their evil hearts, but they, and they will no longer serve idols, but they will be converted and serve God. In Isaiah 19, it speaks of Egypt and Assyria, and it says, in Isaiah 19, verse 21, Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, and he will strike and heal it. He's going to strike it first and then heal it. And they will return to the Lord. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. These will be three of the leading nations on the earth. And it says, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. 
Blessed is Egypt, my people, not Israel, my people. In this case, but Egypt, who will also be among the people of God. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. See, all of the these nations will be among God's people at that time, along with the other nations of the earth. What is said here of the Assyrians and Egyptians and the Israelites will apply in principle to all peoples of the earth. And so we'll see Afghani and Arab, Chinese and Japanese, Hindu and Tutsi, American Indians and East Indians, Russians and Italians, people of every nation, language and family on earth will be taught to know the eternal the creator, God. Everyone will be corrected and everyone will be healed and blessed. And every nation and people who remain will be a blessing in the midst of the earth. In Psalm 22 and verse 27, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. In Psalm 67 and verse 1, Psalm 67 verse 1 says, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your, your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all ends of the earth shall fear him. So God is going to, at the time that he blesses Israel, he is going to be governing all the nations on the earth and all will come to fear him. In Psalm 72 and verse 7, it says, In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. This is going to be a permanent peace. It's not just going to be a temporary truce while nations prepare for war, but this will be a permanent peace during which they will divest themselves of their weapons of war. There will be no military schools, no West Point, no Naval Academy, no Air Force Academy. No other schools that teach war. It will be a thing of the past. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. This is an expression meaning that they will be completely subjugated to him. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and 
the kings of Sheba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. The kings of the earth will make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to come before God with gifts and presents and offerings. And they will fall down before the God of the earth, the God of creation, and they will serve him. Going on in verse 17 of Psalm 72, it says, His, nation, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. That wasn't the way it worked out the first time when Christ came, but it will be what will occur in the future when Christ comes again. In Psalm 86 and verse 9, it says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In Psalm 102 and verse 15, so the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. Yes, Jesus Christ is going to be there in person, visible to the nations. And he will be glorious before them. His king of the earth. In Psalm 102 and verse 22, it says, When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Speaking of that time. In Jeremiah 4 and verse 1, Jeremiah wrote, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved, meaning that they would no longer be overrun by their enemies or subject to disasters which would tend to destroy them. It goes on to say in verse 2, And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Notice again that the restoration of Israel is placed alongside the nations coming to recognize who the true God is and serving him. And so Israel during that period of time will actually fulfill the calling that God had intended from the time that he called them out of Egypt. They will be the model nation after God establishes his rule over Israel and Judah as a united people. They will be the model nation for the rest of the nations of the earth. And all the nations will, as, we, as, we, as we've read, they will come to Jerusalem to learn about God. In Zechariah 2 and verse 10, we read, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, behold, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst. Speaking of the people of Israel, at that time 
Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst, in the midst of Zion. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Speaking of the Messiah. In Zechariah 8, verse 22, it says, Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those, those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. See, Israel at that time will be fulfilling their calling. They will be the model nation. They will be the teachers for the other nations to teach them about God, along with the resurrected saints who will also be there teaching. And they will be an example. Zechariah 14, verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So there will be people from all nations every year going up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, shows that the Feasts of God, the Sabbath and the other festivals that God commanded to be kept are not superseded by some feasts or observances borrowed from pagan religions, which is absurd and absurd and completely uh, an idea completely contrary to Scripture to begin with. There's nothing in Scripture to support such an idea. So. The prophecy of Daniel 7 will be fulfilled at that time where Daniel wrote, beginning with verse 13, Daniel 7, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. God has never forgotten that his purpose to reproduce himself, to build for himself a family of sons, has included all mankind. God has allowed mankind to go his own way. And mankind has gone his own way and followed Satan and rejected God's laws. But God still is going to accomplish his purpose despite what human beings have done. He will remove Satan. He will correct the nations. And he will bring them to repentance and restore them and heal them pour out his spirit on them and teach them and they will be converted and learn to serve him. God's fully capable of ruling and judging the earth and 
he will set his hand to do just that at the time that he chooses. And that is part of what is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. So when we think about the Feast of Tabernacles and what it pictures, let's think on a global scale. Let's think about what it means for the entire human family, the family that will at that time belong fully to God. <clears throat> 